Whatever happened to the lost city of Atlantis? This once prosperous city that mysteriously sank into the ocean, never to be found again. This was the question famous comic book author Peter David sought to answer in his comic book series, The Atlantis Chronicles. His answer to this question was that millennia ago, the city was hit by a meteor which sank the city into the Atlantic Ocean. As he wrote out the script for the book, he described the meteor coming closer and closer until you could fully see the face of the meteor. So Peter submitted his script to the artist, but was utterly gobsmacked when he saw what the artist had drawn based on his script. Here is a direct quote from Peter in an interview describing his shock at how his script had turned out. Quote, When I wrote the Atlantis Chronicles, I wrote it full script. And the script was translated for Esteban Morado, the artist, who only speaks Spanish by his daughter. So in the first chapter, I decided to have it be that the reason Atlantis sank was because of a meteor strike. So I described that the meteor was drawing closer and closer. And at one point around page 30, I said, panel one. The meteor has drawn closer, and for the first time, we can now see the face of the meteor, its craggy surface and exterior. Now, when I said face, I meant front, surface. We got the pages back, and to my astonishment, Esteban Morado had drawn a death's head skull face onto the meteor. And I'm looking and going, holy moly, there's an actual face. And indeed, if you were to read Peter David's comic today, every time you see the meteor, it has a literal face on it. Now, of course, this is not what David ever intended. The artist had tried his best to understand and rightly interpret the words of the author, but he had still fallen short. Even though he was sincere in his efforts, he ultimately failed. Now, when it comes to a comic book, not understanding the author's words correctly is pretty inconsequential. It doesn't really matter. But when it comes to understanding the words of the Bible, we want to make sure we get them absolutely right. And so this morning, we're going to continue looking at how to interpret and understand the Bible. And we don't want to just be sincere and give a, a good attempt we want to make sure that we rightly understand the Word of God. So, last time we spoke, we looked at three new things, two words and one acronym. The first word was exegesis, which means to draw out meaning from the text. That's what we want to do. The second, <coughs> the second is eisegesis, which is to put meaning into the text. And that's what we want to avoid doing. And finally, the acronym AIM stands for Author's Intended Meaning. If we perform a good exegesis, we will ultimately find the AIM. And so this morning, we want to look at, okay, well, how do we perform good exegesis? And we're going to look at a series of questions that will help us to draw meaning out from the text. And the, the key text we're going to use as an example is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a, an epistle written to the church in Corinth by the Apostle Paul. 
And we're going to go through these questions, but not only that, we're going to try and apply the message of Paul to our lives today. So this is our passage for this morning, and we want to find, all right, what is Paul saying to the church in Corinth, and what is the aim of this passage? So the first question we should always ask is, who is the author, or who is writing this? So who's writing this passage here? Paul. What do we know about Paul? Just call out some things. What do we know about Paul? Yep, he was a persecutor, and then he's converted. He's converted. So he he's yeah. His previous job was going and killing the Christians. Now he's a missionary for them. So he had a personal experience with God. What are some other things we know about Paul? So Paul has actually seen Jesus. He's an apostle. He's one of the people who has actually seen who Jesus is. Cost him his eyesight. Yeah, cost him his eyesight for a bit there. Yeah. He's also a Roman citizen, so he was a man of, you know, quite good standing. He was also, uh, while he was persecuting the Christians, does anyone remember what his job was? The, persecuting the Christians was a bit of a side hobby for him, but what was his... Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And what's a Pharisee? A, a, a sect of the Jews. Yeah, they were teachers. Yeah, they were teachers in the law. Mm-hmm. So Paul was a religious leader. He, he knew the Bible really well. He really knew it. Did you know that it's very, very likely that Paul was also, uh, at the point of writing this, he may have been a divorced man. In order to be a Pharisee and be in a man of such elite status as Paul was, one of the requirements at the time was that you be a married man. But when we read about Paul on his missionary journeys, he says he's single. So it's actually very likely that Paul was married and that his Christian faith cost him his marriage, that his wife did not want to, lo- did not want to be with Paul any longer as a result of his faith. So, all right, we've got a picture of who Paul is. That's good. Our second question then is, who is the author writing to? Who is Paul writing this book to, this letter rather? Christians in Corinth. What are some of the words he uses to describe them in verse 2 there? Paul called to be saints to the church isn't it interesting he goes to with all who in every place call on the name of jesus so he's writing it to corinth but he also says it's for all those who call on the name of jesus so we should keep in mind that paul is specifically writing to the church in corinth all right let's have a look at our third question Our third question being, why is the author writing to this audience? Or if we rewrite it, why is Paul writing to the church in Corinth? They're having a few problems. Okay, so what are their problems? They can't agree with one another. Yep. He wants peace. There's conflict in the church. People are divided up. Now... The church in Corinth is probably, without a doubt, the worst church that we read about in the New Testament. It is the most problematic church there is. So Paul starts, he starts by saying, you guys are too divided. But the list of problems goes on. He says, one of your members is having an affair with their stepmother. And he says, and none of you are doing anything about it. All of the church members are suing each other and taking them, each other to court. 
They're struggling with lust. They're not being sensitive to one another's beliefs and personalities. These people are fighting during communion. So the bread and the wine is going around and they're fighting because they're hungry. Hey, give me that bread. I'm hungry. During communion, they're, not, they're misusing their spiritual gifts and they even deny the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. This is the worst church ever. <laughs> they, they were, yeah, in that regard, they were. So as we continue reading, we see there's a whole list of problems in Corinth. But the very first thing that he says in the, the, in the passage that we're reading about is they're just not united. This church is divided. They're, they're going into little cliques. So some people are saying, well, I'm team Apollos. And other people are saying, I'm team Paul. Well, I'm team Jesus. I'm team Peter. And they're creating these little subgroups in the church. And these groups are fighting against each other. Well, how is the church supposed to do any mission or evangelism when... The people in, in the church can't even get along. So Paul, he's making an appeal to this church. He's saying, please be united. I love what he says in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Is Jesus divided? Or is Jesus, is he united? How silly is it this church? They're saying, well, I'm team Peter. And someone else says, well, I'm team Jesus. As though Jesus and Peter aren't on the same team. If you're team Jesus, you're team everyone. But people are saying, no, I'm specifically team Peter as opposed to team Jesus. It's just, it's silly, really. So why is Paul writing to this church? They're about the worst church ever. (laughs) But primarily in the passage we're looking at, he's writing to them because he wants them to be united. They're too divided. And because they're divided, they can't fulfill their purpose, which is preach the gospel, build the kingdom. All right, our fourth question. What is the author writing to this audience? We know the why, but what is he actually writing to them? What has he actually said to them? Yeah? The church is no good. Yeah, well, he does. Well, it's interesting. You're exactly right. He says to them... You guys are broken. You're a broken church. But in verse 4 to 9, he actually encourages them and builds them up as well. He says, I thank God concerning you. Man, if I was the pastor at the Corinthian church, I don't think I'd thank God for them. They'd be such a, a, a burden. But Paul says, I thank God for you, for the grace that you've given. And he says that you are enriched. That you, ha- that you have no shortage of gifts that God has given to you. That God will confirm you in the end. That you will be blameless on the last day. So it actually encourages them as well. Before he addresses the problem, he builds them up first. And he says, I thank God for you. Even though this church is rebellious, even though they can't get anything right, Paul hasn't given up on this church. And more importantly, what does he tell them? Not just him, God. God has not given up on this church. Paul says to them, you guys are troubled. You need to work things out. But I haven't given up on you. I thank God for you. And God has not given up on you as a church. God is going to be faithful to you, even when you're not necessarily faithful to him. Our fifth question, what is the historical context? So by this we mean, 
what is happening at this point in time. So this is the church in Corinth. So, all right, what was the ancient city of Corinth like? Well, the city of Corinth, it was a port city. It was uh, along a coast. And so you had ships coming in all the time to do trade and business in Corinth. And with that came a lot of people bringing idols and other gods and foreign religions into Corinth. Corinth was well known for being a hub of all these different gods and religions. In Corinth, we also found the biggest temple. Here's what's left of the temple that was in Corinth. This was one of the biggest temples in the ancient world. And it was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And she was the god of love. And so you could go to the temple, pay a little bit of money, and you could have one of the people there give you a few special favors. We'll keep it there. This city was a place of vice and corruption. And in fact, the Greeks, they had a word for evil. Their word for evil was Corinthia Zoma, which literally means to act like a Corinthian. That's how bad the city of Corinth was. If you were a Greek and you wanted to say you're acting evilly, you'd say you're acting like a Corinthian. That's how bad this city was known for how evil and sinful it was. And so the city of Corinth, it's evil and corrupt, but it's also influencing the Corinthian church. That's why the church is so troubled. We would read this and go, why is it that this church has so many problems? One of the reasons is it's living in one of the worst cities in the ancient world. And that corrupting influence of the city, it hasn't escaped the church. The church too is being affected by this corrupting influence. So now we have a bit of understanding as to why this church is so problematic and why so many of the problems it has really just aligns with the culture that it's in um, because they're just so being corrupted. Our sixth question, we're almost finished with all our questions. Number six is, what is the genre? So if you think about genres in movies, what kind of movie genres are there? Thrillers, horror, horror, horror romance, romance, comedy, action. action. How do you pronounce that word again? Genre. Oh, genre. <laughs> it's a fancy word. As in French or what? I got no idea what language it's from. <laughs> but it's a fancy word for type. It's like a type of thing. Sounds like a French word. I think you're probably right. could be Greek too. Who knows what it is? <laughs> Documentaries, there we go. History. So we've perfectly figured out what a type of movie is or a genre of movie. What type, what type of books do we find in the Bible? Or types? Poetry. There's lots of poems in the Bible. Stories, narratives. And history, can't forget history. Prophecy, God foretelling the future. Prophecy. Letters. Letters. Very good. Letters. Any other uh, possible ones? Paper. Paper, yeah. <laughs> History. What about those four books at the start of the New Testament? Gospels. They're biographies of Jesus' life. So there's quite a number of different types of books. Just like there are different types of movies, there are different types of books in the Bible. 
So what type of book are we reading here? Is it a narrative? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? It's a letter. So Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. Now the thing about writing letters is they're written to a specific person at a specific time for a specific reason. So for example, if we wind back the clock, not too far, but if we say, I sent you an invitation to my 21st birthday party. And I say, on this date, I want you here at this time, at this place, to celebrate my 21st birthday. But then that mail goes missing, and you only get it a year later. Is that letter still relevant? No. <laughs> Why isn't it relevant? Yeah, it's over. So if you come to my house on that day at that time, I'll go, what are you doing? <laughs> get out of my house. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'll take take the presents and then boot you out. <laughs> but the time that the letter has been relevant is over. I wrote it for a specific time, for a specific occasion, to a specific person. And now it's just not relevant to you anymore. And that's the difficulty with reading letters, even biblical letters. Biblical letters are written to a specific people at a specific time, for a specific reason. Imagine if you get someone's mail. So, for example, at a church that I was working at uh, a few years back, there were some people who were not allowed to talk up the front. Anytime they talked up the front, they were troublemakers. So, can I get someone to volunteer me using their name? I don't want to pick on anyone. Me. Oh, <laughs> Sarah, okay. Thank you, Sarah. So let's just, for the sake of this illustration, say the person at that church was called Sarah. So imagine I'm writing a letter to someone visiting that day and I say, under no circumstances whatsoever, do not let Sarah talk at the front of church. I'm talking about the Sarah in my church, right? And I send off that letter to someone and it accidentally ends up here at Canamble Church. And then I open it up and I go, let's see what the mail for Canamble is. It goes, under no circumstances whatsoever, do not let Sarah preach. What? You can see how the confusion can start, right? You got someone else's mail. That mail was not meant for you. But it said, hey, don't let Sarah talk at the front. That's no good, is it? Now imagine if we then said, all right, everyone, under no circumstances is Sarah ever allowed to talk at church. Have we done the right thing? No. Why have we not done the right thing? She got the wrong Sarah. It's the wrong Sarah. It's, it was mail that was never supposed to come to us. We're reading someone else's letters. No, it was perceived right by the wrong person. Yes, that's right. Well, yours could be Sarah, this one's Sarah. Yeah, that's right as well. You can't tell by reading just the words, can you? Could be jumping Could jump to conclusions. That's right. So when we read letters in the Bible, we have to be very careful that we don't accidentally apply things to the modern day that Paul only ever meant for this person at this particular time for this particular reason. And unfortunately, a lot of people misread the letters. They'll grab bits and pieces they like and they'll say, well, I don't like this. Uh, I like this part. Is there a lesson there is. So even if there's not a, uh, even if we're not supposed to necessarily apply the principle, there can be lessons to be learned from them. 
So really, it's just we have to have a word of uh, we have to be cautious when we read letters. Number seven. What is the context of the passage? Well, as we we've looked at this passage, Paul addresses the church in Corinth. He encourages them, and then he starts to address the problems. That's really the context of the passage. Number seven is I've missed one question. Sorry. <coughs> What is the literary context? So that just means, what about the other books of the Bible? What do the other books of the Bible have to say that can help us better read this story? How can we use other books in the Bible to help us understand the book of 1 Corinthians? Yes. Very much. We use other letters that Paul wrote. If Paul says something here and we don't quite understand it, maybe we can use another time in another letter where he says it more clearly. We can compare and contrast. But wasn't it all about Jesus? It is all about Jesus. It all does ultimately point towards Jesus. Here's an interesting fact for you. Did you know that the book of 1 Corinthians is actually the first book ever written in the New Testament? Before any of the Gospels were ever written, 1 Corinthians is the first book ever written by a New Testament author. Here's another interesting fact for you. Did you know the book of 1 Corinthians is actually the second book of Corinthians? 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. Have a read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9. Paul, he says to the church, I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So Paul says, I wrote to you in my previous letter. So that implies what? There's another letter. So Paul's already written a letter to this church. So this one is actually his second letter. And then, well, there is. We read later in 2 Corinthians, Paul says... Paul does the same thing. In 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm so sorry, I wrote too harshly in in the last letter I sent you. But he talks about different things than are in 1 Corinthians. So in between writing what we call 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul actually wrote another letter. So he wrote one, and then he wrote this book, and then he wrote another one, and then he wrote 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, we could say, is actually... 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4th, 4th Corinthians. Now, we don't worry about the other letters because clearly if God wanted us to know what Paul wrote in those letters, he would have given it to us. So whatever Paul wrote wasn't inspired. It wasn't necessary for us to know. So we don't have to worry about it. Some people get really worried that we don't have these. If God wanted us to have them, he would put it in the Bible. But what it does mean is, it gets a bit tricky to know what Paul's referring to. So not only are we reading letters that Paul wrote to people, that's already hard to interpret, but he's written other letters beforehand that we don't have. So sometimes Paul will reference something that he wrote in this letter that we don't know anything about. It makes it very tricky, but it's good to know so that we can read the words properly. It's good to know so that we can, when Paul says, now when I wrote to you last time, we can think to ourselves, okay, what was he, what is this topic? It really helps us to be careful when reading the book. Make sure that we get the most out of the book. So our final two questions. We've done a really good job unpacking this. 
So let's get to our final two. We've learned almost all there is to learn about this, these first few verses. So what now is the aim? We've looked at all these questions to find out who is he writing to? Why is he writing it? How do we understand a letter that wasn't originally written to us? How do we make sure we interpret it right? Now we can finally ask ourselves the question, what is the aim of this passage? What is Paul trying to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? What do you think? Based on what we've looked at, what is Paul really trying to say to the church in Corinth? Some of them were. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the passage we've been looking at primarily. What, is he, what, what has been the main thing he's trying to say in this first chapter? Don't be divided, be united. That's, that's the main thrust of his argument. He says, you guys are divided. You're allowing the culture around you, the city of Corinth, to negatively influence you. And by allowing this negative influence into the church, it's divided you. You're dividing over all these different issues, but you need to be united. Yeah, they needed to be united together. Not only that, but he says, as we said before, Paul says, you're... You've got a lot of problems, but God has not given up on you as a church. God, on that last day, will make sure that you see salvation. He will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only does Paul critique the areas of this church that need to be improved, he builds them up and encourages them. And he says, God has not given up on you, and neither have I. That is the aim of what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So our final question is this. And mind you, this is the most important question we can ask ourselves. If we miss this one, we failed to properly read the Bible. Because all of these questions so far have to do with head knowledge. Us understanding the text. And that's important. We always need to know what the text says. But if it just stays in our head, it doesn't do us any good. Knowing about the Bible is not enough. That knowledge has to go to the heart. The heart must be transformed. So, the most important question to ever ask ourselves whenever we pick up the Bible is, what can I apply to my life? What am I actually going to do with what I found out? What can I actually apply to my life from the knowledge that I've discovered? What will you apply to your life from this text? I think there are many things we can apply to our life from the text here in 1 Corinthians. Firstly, Paul talks about division in the church. And perhaps some of us have in, at times been complicit in that, have created division. Perhaps it's been a misplaced word, a grudge created or held, a personality clash. Whatever the case may be, perhaps we have contributed to this division. But Paul says that the church cannot progress with its mission if these problems remain unresolved. Perhaps you haven't been uh, responsible even in this conflict. Perhaps you're not the guilty party. But Jesus says that before we come to church, 
If we know that someone has something against us, it's our responsibility to seek reconciliation with that person. The responsibility is on them, yes, but it's also on you to make sure that your relationship is reconciled, to make sure that that division turns into reconciliation. Perhaps that's something that you need to do. Perhaps you know that there's some conflict or division between you and someone else. And Jesus and Paul both say, mend those relationships. Get rid of that division so that the church can be united. Perhaps you need to be reminded of the gifts that God has given you. Paul says to the church in Corinth, you come short in no gift, but eagerly wait for the revelation of Jesus. God has given every single person in the church a gift to use to build up his kingdom. Perhaps this can be encouraging and remind you that God has given you a gift. If you do know what your spiritual gift is, my question is, have you been using it? Do you know if you've been using that gift to build up the church? Maybe you don't know what your spiritual gift is. And if you don't, come talk with me. We'll find it. Because God has given every single person a gift. And I'd love to find out what that gift is and make sure we can use it in the church. Finally, God said to the Corinthians that he had not given up on them. And this is the people whose name means literally to act evilly. To be a Corinthian was to act evilly in the Greek language. Oh, you're acting evil? You're acting like a Corinthian. And the church was not much better. But God had said that he had not given up on the Corinthian church. I think we can apply that principle to our lives as well. We look at ourselves and sometimes we see our failures, we see our weaknesses and our sin. And we think sometimes, and this is a, a very clever lie that Satan tells us, that we have outsinned God's love somehow. That there must be, there's no hope for us. That God must have given up on us because we're just that evil. I don't think any, any human person could outsin the love of God. So long as that person is willing to repent and ask God for forgiveness of their sins, no one can outsin the love of God. God forgives us. He reconciles us back to him. He makes us holy. And then he builds up his church through us. So this is my appeal to us today. Use these principles to not only learn about the Bible but be transformed by it. Like the artist at the beginning of our uh, sermon today, we said he was sincerely wrong. He tried his best, but he was sincerely wrong. We want to be more than just, pardon me, we want to be more than just sincerely wrong. We want to be sincerely right when we read God's word. Strive to be sincerely right and strive to be transformed by the word of God. Use these principles to help you in your reading of the Bible and let them transform you more and more into the very image of God. Let the words bring forgiveness, reconciliation. Let them encourage and inspire you as to how you can build up God's church with your gifts. And then let them give you hope that God will never, never give up on you.